Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle-Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Eileen Devine to the show for part one of their discussion on the intersection of attachment and fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Part two will be released on Tuesday, December 22nd. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here today for another episode. So my guest today is Eileen Devine, and let me tell you a bit about her. Um, She is an LCSW. She has over a dozen years of clinical experience and is the adoptive mother of a child with fetal alcohol syndrome, which is what we're going to focus on on today, looking at the overlay of attachment and fetal alcohol syndrome. She believes that kids do well if they can, and that the way we understand uh, a child is understanding how their brain works, and also the meaning behind challenging behaviors. Her goals are not only to support parents in feeling more competent and confident in connecting with their child by parenting from a brain-based perspective, but also to recognize their experience as the parent of a child with challenging behavioral symptoms and the impact that this has on their sense of self and well-being. Eileen is also an instructor in the Postmaster Certificate Program for Adoption and Foster Therapy through Portland State University's Child Welfare Partnership, training other therapists on the neurobehavioral model. So Eileen is coming to us with both professional and personal experience. And one of the reasons that this really caught my attention to have her as a guest on the Attachment Theory in Action podcast is many times people mistake uh, alcohol-related neurological disorders, fetal alcohol syndrome, drug exposure in utero. Many people mistake the impacts of these things and the resulting behaviors to be attachment problems. Um, And they're a completely different thing and the approach to them needs to be very different. Uh, So that is why we really wanted to have her here as a guest today. So she will be joining us in just a second. Welcome to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Eileen, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. Good, me too. So, you know, I always tell my guests, you know, I did a more formal introduction of some of your credentials and your background, but then I often ask, what's your informal introduction? You know, why were you drawn to be a clinical social worker and what in your personal life draws you to this topic? today that we're going to talk about um, with the in utero exposure to drugs and alcohol. So what might you share about some of that? Yeah, well, I appreciate you asking that question because it's actually a pretty big part of my story. So I'm a licensed clinical social worker, which I'm sure was in your intro. Um, The piece that led me to this type of work is actually a long, windy road, which I'll make very short. (laughs) (laughs) I I, um, got into social work um, a very long time ago and was in a completely different line of clinical work. 
Um, when my husband and I were growing our family, we had a biological child, decided that we wanted to expand our family through adoption, very, very quickly um, had a little girl placed with us come into our life uh, very unexpectedly. My kids are only 15 months apart for that reason. Um, and very quickly realized that her development was not typical. And so to make a very long story short, when she was probably about three and there were some behaviors that were really not um, in line with what I knew to be true about how kids behave at three, even with that, you know, the challenges that come with that age, I went searching for answers. By that time, we had some history um, from her birth mom about drinking during pregnancy and that kind of thing. But even as a social worker, understanding that fetal alcohol spectrum disorder was out there, I had no idea what it really, really meant for her and her day to day in the way that I needed to parent her differently. Um, so that led me um, on this quest to find the information that I that I knew I was missing. I was very hopeful it was out there and um, came into contact with Diane Malvin, who is the creator of what's called the neurobehavioral model. She wrote a book called Trying Differently Rather Than Harder, mm -hmm. focused on that model, and went to her training, and it, it forever changed the way that I viewed my daughter. And I thought, why don't more parents know about this? <laughs> there is so much more hope than we were led to believe. It doesn't mean it's easy, but this is such a different perspective that's so necessary. Like, why aren't families being given this information? And so I actually looked for my own support. I wanted to have a coach or a therapist who knew this information and could walk alongside me as I put the, that theory, that model into practice. And I just, I couldn't find anyone. There's so much out there about the behavioral lens um, in parenting, but nothing from this perspective. So that's when I decided, well, maybe I should just do this myself. <laughs> and it's been, um, it's, been a, it's been a wonderful journey ever since then. So that's how it led to my private practice and some other um, training um, pieces that I do for professionals and parents. Um, and so my daughter's 11. My son, my bio son is 12. My daughter's 11. And so been on this journey for quite a while now and have a lot of appreciation for the daily commitment that it takes to parent from this perspective. And that's what I'm committed to do in terms of my work in supporting those parents um, in living this out day to day. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Wow. That's a lot. Um, so, you know, what I shared uh, before you came on was that one of the reasons I feel like this is relevant for the Attachment Theory and Action podcast is this is something that is misunderstood and misdiagnosed and kind of lumped into reactive attachment disorder. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. That that's what these behaviors are. They're willful. They're manipulative. They're related yes. to, to trauma. They're related to attachment. Um, and not that there could not be some pieces of some of this woven in, but that is not the primary aspect of what we're dealing with. And I feel like it's so important to educate people about that. Yeah, I mean, of course, I agree with you. I'm very biased in that. But <laughs> I agree with you. I think the, the prevalence of FASD, um, certainly in the US, but really across the world is much more significant than anyone recognizes or realizes or really wants to recognize, right? It's a pretty 
it's a pretty um, taboo topic in a lot of ways. And so it doesn't get what I think of as a lot of airplay, right? There's not things like there is about Down syndrome and autism and ADHD out there that you just don't see that with FASD. But the fact is that it's the leading cause of developmental disabilities in the westernized world. And that's with folks who are, I say folks, adults and kids, who actually have the diagnosis, which is a whole nother issue, right? Getting that diagnosis, having that history confirmed. Um, or in the case of a birth parent, the doctor asking the question, did you drink during your pregnancy? And understanding that maybe it's FASD and not, for example, ADHD. So there's lots of layers of complication in terms of why this diagnosis doesn't happen in the first place. But even with those who do get the diagnosis, um, the rates are so high. The rates of this compared to um, other diagnoses like autism, for example. So are what, are some, what are some of those rates, Eileen? Yeah, so it's the leading cause of developmental disabilities in the westernized world. That's um, the first one that I think helps give people a lot of perspective. Yes, yes. Um, and again, that's with knowing that there are, there's estimates that 80, 90, 80 to 90% of people, of kids who actually have FASD are misdiagnosed as something yes. else. So that's um, really even just looking at who we actually give a proper diagnosed diagnosis to it's the leading cause but that's a really an underestimate exactly mm-hmm. yep and you could have a whole it's other kind podcast of like, episode on why that is <laughs> yeah well it's kind of like you know i know listeners will hear this later but it's kind of like not testing for covid and not getting it right means mm-hmm. we don't see the same rates of COVID. that's right that's so right a, well kind of thing. right and there's you know of course there's different layers in terms of um you know, who does get asked these questions and who doesn't, um, that yeah. sort of thing, right? My, my daughter's birth mother um, was asked these questions, and that's why we were able to get that history, because there were assumptions made about her um, based on her class, her race, all of those sorts of things. Um, those questions aren't asked of me or, you know, the, the, the friends that I have who um, are of my age and um, of my socioeconomic level, of my race, and but what we know is that the the women who are most risk for having a child with FASD are actually my cohort. They're in their 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 young late thirties, early forties. They're highly educated, um, middle to upper middle class, socioeconomic level. So there's lots of different layers of complication that result in these kids getting misdiagnosed with other things like RAD, like ODD, like ADHD, like autism. The list is quite long. <laughs> yes, it is. And truthfully, you know, some of those things could be hard to tease out. But when before we go any further, I want to like somehow put like a giant exclamation point around this next thing that I want to ask you about or maybe get confirmation when you said, you know, the incident in your cohort is high. I get so upset every time, whether it's on TV, whether it's in a movie, whether it's just somebody in a social situation where doctors are saying some amount of alcohol is okay. Oh yeah, you can have a glass of wine at night. And you know, you don't have to look very far in the literature and with people who are really experts in this area to know that is like not true. Like, That's right. It's so upsetting to me because the other thing about it being the number one contributor to, to, to disabilities. I forget exactly how you said it, but um, mm-hmm. is that it's preventable. That's right. Yep. It's right. not genetic. 
Right. Yeah. It's a hundred percent preventable, um, which is really to think about the weight of that is, um, is really astounding. So yeah, there's, and that's why I said it's a, you know, the, the use of alcohol is a very fickle <laughs> topic in our society. And, um, you know, I often say in my trainings, if, if we were to say you can't eat asparagus throughout your pregnancy, um, because this or that, there's a potential of this or that happening. We know no amount of asparagus is safe for your baby. People are like, okay, <laughs> right. Done. no problem, right? But alcohol, it's a different, it's a different story. Um, and so, yeah, lots of education to be done there, lots of prevention. But I do believe that the more we talk about it, that, that when people can name it and they understand exactly what we're talking about, that is preventative in and of itself. So, you know, going back to my own journey where I knew what FASD stood for. I knew what caused it, but did I really know? Did I really know the lifelong impacts of the child who has FASD and their family? Nope. (laughs) I, I, I couldn't even begin to imagine that. And so that's one of the things that I hope to do through my work and talking with people like you and others is really help paint that picture of what these kids and families are experiencing. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So anyone listening, no amount of alcohol is safe during pregnancy, no matter what anyone tells you, even if it's a physician, no amount is safe. That's right. That's and, right. And it is, it is a spectrum disorder, right? And so we see that whole spectrum play out, but even on what you might consider the you know, less severe end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. um, there are still really significant issues that these kids have as a result. Yes. So um, you, you mentioned the book, you know, trying differently rather than harder. And I think one of the things that, we think about is whether or not um, behaviors in, in children with this disorder are willful or, you know, they're being manipulative. And mm-hmm. I think an, a big issue that we come across, and this isn't just with, with um, FASD, but if you can do it one day, then, mm-hmm. then when you don't do it the next day, that must mean that you're being defiant or something. Um, So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to talk about that because that really is at the heart of this neurobehavioral model that I, this lens that I come from and help teach parents the, what I mentioned, um, Diane Malden creating so many years ago. And so when we look at um, what our brain does for us every single day, it's pretty amazing, right? I mean, it is, there's no behavior that is not connected to our brain function. And once we understand that, then we say, okay, well, if a child has been exposed to alcohol, drugs, trauma, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons, but here we're talking about alcohol prenatally, um, then their, their brain has been changed. It's been altered in structure and function. So it makes sense that we'd see that in behavioral symptoms. Now, what's really hard to hold on to is the fact that those are symptoms of their disability and not intentional, right? To get away from that behavioral lens and get into this brain-based lens of saying, okay, I see this behavior then as a symptom of their physical disability of the brain. How am I going to accommodate them then to help calm down that behavior? But if we are able to see that as a symptom and hold on to that, even for a moment, (laughs) it'll lead us down this path of 
sympathy and empathy as a parent versus oh, I want to punish, I want a consequence, I'm going to give them a sticker chart, I'm just going to take away things, trying to exert our control really because we don't feel like we have anything else to do or anything else that works, right? So I hear from these parents all the time, well, nothing works. Like that worked with my typical children, <laughs> but this doesn't work with them. It's like, well, let's talk about why that is. That's where the parenting differently comes in, right? These parents are already working hard enough. If they can just take that energy and do things differently, then they'll start to see that success. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think um, I've seen some of your writing and others about calling it the invisible disability. And I think um, it's another opportunity to educate about the fact that I think maybe some people would say, well, no, it's not because I've seen pictures of what kids look like that have um, had in exposure to alcohol that have fetal alcohol syndrome. And there's this thought that there's these very specific facial features. And if you don't have those, then you don't have this. We can kind of roll that out. I'm sure you have something to say about that, Eileen. I just have a feeling, I right? <laughs> I do, I do, surprisingly. So it's, it's helpful to understand that fetal alcohol spectrum disorders is sort of an umbrella diagnosis. And under that is fetal alcohol syndrome. And that's yes. actually the diagnosis my daughter has. And what that means is that they had a constellation, this, the child who has that diagnosis has a constellation of facial characteristics that, um, w that basically confirmed that diagnosis, right? Um, but what a lot of people don't understand is those facial features are very subtle. I mean, the, the doctors who the measure, they have tools to measure. It's not just looking at someone and knowing that that's mm -hmm. the case. They're very subtle and they fade with age in most cases. So you would never look at my daughter and say like, oh, there's something different there, right? Just from looking at her face. The mm -hmm. other thing that people don't understand is that a child who does not have those facial features, so they don't have a diagnosis of FAS, but mm -hmm. they are on the spectrum, FASD, mm -hmm. um, that it does not mean less severe. So there are kids who have FASD who have just as many challenges, if not more, than those kids that had the FAS criteria, if that makes sense. The other interesting thing I think is you can hear kind of the confusion that can kind of come out of all of knowing the ins and outs about that. Um, Australia and Canada, I believe at this point, have done away with all of the sub diagnoses. So they're just talking about FASDs and that's it. Because of that confusion, because it is the spectrum disorder, because kids on that spectrum could be more or less severe, it doesn't matter with the facial characteristics, that sort of thing. Um, but what I, the other, the other big misconception is that there is going to be, like say in a school setting, for example, if a child has FASD, the assumption is you will see that through behaviors and also through academic performance. And that's not always true. There are kids with FASD who are at grade level or maybe just slightly behind, that kind of thing, who struggle mightily with all of the other brain tasks that they need in place to survive their day. And so that teacher may be looking at this child with FASD and saying, uh-uh-uh, I know that it's willingness. I know that they're doing that. That's a willful behavior. It's being done to me. They're trying to manipulate me. They're trying to get away with something. They're lazy. <laughs> you know, the list goes on and on because they can do the work. 
they can do the academic work. And what I always say to parents is that if that is your child, they are going to be at more risk for being misunderstood because it's more invisible. So going back to that idea of this invisible physical disability, when you spend time with my daughter, it doesn't take um, too long before you think like, huh, you know, there's something different. Like this is an 11 year old, but she's not a typical 11 year old. But with a lot of kids, that is not the case. You spend time with them, you see their academic performance, and then you see these really challenging behaviors. And so no wonder that they get looped into this group of these are the kids that ruin everything, right? They just don't want to do it. Um, so again, this advocacy that you can kind of hear and all that I'm saying this, that's what gets parents in this place of exhaustion and burnout and what can I do? And if they don't have the language to talk about how their child's brain works differently, if they don't know very specifically what skills they're lagging in, it makes that advocacy work really, really difficult. Mm, yes. And, you know, how do they find that out. I mean, let's talk a little bit um, before we um, end our first part of our talk about diagnosis and like, you know, um, where to go. I work with a lot of foster and adopted children and um, that it's very complex what is going on here. And I, many of them have gone to, I won't name the places, but they're pristine their prestigious universities and clinics and places where they'll get evaluations. And I feel like, uh, you know, this is overlooked even in some of those places. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. That has been my experience too. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we said, this is the place. Yes. Let's, each, let's tell each. everybody, if you're wondering about this, just call and make an appointment here. Exactly. <laughs> I wish, I wish. So the University of Washington, in all seriousness, is seen as the leading um, place for evaluations. Um, they actually have an, a, a whole entire clinic where clinicians, if you're in that area, you can go and observe their assessment process. Oh, wow. Um, and you can do that right on their website. And so they are they are seen as leading this effort for sure. And then really beyond that, I mean, if you're in any discussion groups with parents with FASD, that is a question that comes up over and over and over again. And sometimes it's, um, I can't get this diagnosis because I don't have the confirmed prenatal history. Um, and then others will say, I didn't need that. Like, this is what they, this is what they based it on. This is what yes. they wanted from me. And so, yeah, it does get very confusing. And what I say to parents who come to me who have a suspicion um, or, you know, they're like, I don't know what's going on with my child. I just know that things aren't quite typical and they're very, very challenging. And for using this neurobehavioral framework to really you know, to have that paradigm shift in your parenting and parent from that lens, I say, you know, diagnosis is important for a lot of reasons, absolutely. And also for the day-to-day -day parenting, the brain is the brain is the brain. Like if you know that your child's brain works differently or you have that hunch and you see these challenging behaviors, if you can just put aside the need to know what do I call it, <laughs> at least momentarily, um, then you'll be on your way, right? That's all you need to know is there's these skills that your child is lagging in, the behaviors show you that. And so how do you accommodate them in those areas where those skills are lagging? 
Yes, yes. Well, hey, listeners, I hope that you guys will come back and join us for part two of our talk with Eileen Devine about um, fetal alcohol issues and fetal alcohol um, spectrum disorder. And we have different names that seem to keep changing. Um, um, And, you know, we'll be talking more in part two about some of the symptoms, some of the um, practical things that need to be thought about with this. And so I hope you will join us for part two. This concludes part one of the two-part conversation between Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Eileen Devine. Part two will be released on December 22nd. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.